0: Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of New Books in Sound Studies, a podcast series of the New Books Network. My name is Khadija Amanda and I'll be your host for the day. I'm here to interview Dr. Pavitra Sundar on her latest monograph, Listening with a Feminist Ear, Soundwork in Bombay Cinema. Pavitra Sundar is an Associate Professor of Literature at Hamilton College, New York. She writes and teaches about film, literature, and sound, with a focus on South Asia. Her research interests span cinema and media studies, post-colonial, literary and cultural studies, sound studies, and women's and gender studies. In the recent book project that we are going to discuss today, Dr. Sundar brings in a nuanced methodological and theoretical intervention of listening with a feminist ear to sound works in Bombay cinema or more popularly known as Bollywood. The text is a study of the cultural, politics and possibilities of sound in cinema. It models a feminist interpretative practice that is not just attuned to how power and privilege are materialized in sound, but that engenders new counter-hegemonic imaginaries. Some of the major themes discussed in the book are the formation of a feminist ear, the relationship between women's voice and body, the sounds of kavali, which is a Sufi genre of music, politics of sounding language, and the relationship between intimacies and listening practices. The book is Pavitra Sundar's Love of Cinema, which was in the sonic format. It's a wonderful read for those interested in sound studies, film and cinema studies, gender studies. Communication and Cultural Studies, and of course, South Asian Studies. An open access edition is available at the official University of Michigan Press, along with the paperback and hardcover versions. A South Asian edition at an affordable price will also be available online soon. Without further delay, let me welcome Dr. Pavitra Sundar on board. I am excited to start my NBN journey with you and text that offers a much-needed sonic intervention in the South Asian context. Thank you, Professor Sundar, for joining me today. Let me start our conversation with a curiosity that encompasses the whole theme of the book. There are indeed a lot of studies on film in the Indian context with an abundance of ocular-centric approaches. What made you listen to Bombay cinema instead of seeing Bombay cinema?
1: Yeah, Um, First of all, thank you so much Khadija for um, inviting me to this, it is such an um, honor when someone engages so closely with the book, so thank you for that. Um, um, How I came to this work, um, like so many people who um, grew up in India or in South Asian communities around the world, I feel like I have always been surrounded by film and film music and in my case, Hindi film music, Um, I, I rarely, growing up as a kid, I rarely went to movies or Or uh, in the theater. Instead, it was TV, radio, playing with my cassettes, uh, playing Antakshari with friends. These were the ways in which um, cinema was alive and present in my life. And so I feel like I was always listening to cinema, um, but that um, daily, day-to-day experience did not match Um, the ways in which cinema was being talked about in all of the scholarly work I was reading. And so in some ways it made um, whether or not I was listening critically and consciously in my growing years, um, um, I was engaging with sound. And so it made sense to me to then to enter, to center sound work in my academic writing practice. Um, And of course my first attempts to talk about sound work uh, though I wasn't using that term then, uh, was in graduate school, and that the book is entirely different than what I did in for my PhD dissertation. But um, but one thing I'll say about that time and about and how it influenced this work is that um, mine was an interdisciplinary graduate program in women's studies in English. And so that meant that um, I was trained in a few different fields. And so I was not anchored in a single discipline. And I think that gave me, that had its challenges, but it also gave me the freedom, even more freedom than I otherwise would have to pursue a path that that, that matched my intuition and my experience and uh, my pleasures as a listener of Hindi cinema. I didn't feel as beholden to certain debates or certain traditions in a particular discipline. Um, so um, that's how I came to uh, listen to cinema as much as seeing it. Um, and, I, and also, I think, as I was writing this book, I realized that listening and seeing are not uh, separate Activities entirely. Um, I had to keep the oral and the visual in play. I didn't want to just reverse it to listen to cinema but to not see it. Right. So um so that was I, I was looking for a way to analyze cinema that centers sound, that amplifies it without um
0: diminishing the importance of the textual or the visual or anything else. Um so yeah. You built a feminist ear that acts as a metaphor for Bombay cinema's gender, sexuality, nation, and body politics. What were the major challenges you faced while curating the concept of a feminist ear? Because there are not many milestones for you to begin with, as there are little to no discussions on the sensory organ of the ear as such.
1: Yeah, you're so, so right. (laughs) Particularly when I started this project, which was I don't know. Maybe about ten years ago, um, there wasn't much, and, and in fact, there still isn't a whole lot um, of scholarly lighting on writing on sound and listening, very broadly conceived in Hindi cinema. So, of course, there is a very important and rich body of work by ethnomusicologists who are working on cinema. So I don't mean to discount that at all, because that's been extremely useful for my work. Um, But what I was aiming for in this book is slightly different. Um, I was aiming, as I said, to center sound and listening, such that we're not just listening to music or listening for a particular Um, sonic element, right? So sound as an object of study, it is that in a sense, right? But I also wanted to do more in that I wanted oral concepts, A-U-R-A-L, and oral concepts to um, drive the work conceptually. So what might it mean to think of film sonically, not not just to think off film sound or off film music uh, or song sequences or whatever. Um, So the attempt here was to remember that Film is an audiovisual medium, not just one that is primarily visual in nature, um, and to emphasize oral metaphors, concepts. Um, so what would that shift do to our thinking and our writing about uh, cinema? Um, I was very influenced by new musicology of the 1990s, feminist musicology that was... Um, uh, highlighting gender and sexuality and music. Uh, But there was no one I encountered in that field at that time who was working on South Asia. By the same token, I was very influenced by this um, corpus of South Asian feminist work that critiqued nation, the politics of nation, Um, but I didn't find any work, then that was focused on film soundtracks. And so in some ways I was putting together, it was a sort of piecemeal process, um, borrowing a little bit of this a little bit of that. to. To head in the direction um, that I wanted to, that I wanted to head in, and this is this is true early in my career. I would say that now the ter- intellectual terrain has shifted quite a bit. Um, there's a flourishing, I think, of sound studies as a field. Um, there is also um, you know, feminist media studies, performance studies, radio studies. All of this work is being done. Um, on South Asia. And of course, as I mentioned, that expansion of the musicological work, um, that now it feels like I'm actually thinking in the company of many, many interlocutors. Um, And that's, so that's been a profound shift over the course of my, you know, when I began thinking about sound to um, the publication of this book.
0: Listening is the core methodological and theoretical intervention in the monograph. Listening is capable enough to produce concepts, genealogies, and futures. How was it like to build listening as the core methodology of your study?
1: How was it like? It was very anxiety inducing. <laughs> it was um and it was it was anxiety-inducing because I kept thinking, well, what uh what was I listening to? What am I listening for? If I wasn't doing conventional musicological analysis, right? So there's no notations, no Raga, Tala analysis. There's no commentary on meter or um, a pitch. I mean, there's some, but not a whole lot. That really does not drive this project. Um, So if I'm not doing that, then what kind of analysis am I doing? And so part of the um, lesson of this book in, of writing this book for me was to learn how to trust my embodied knowledge as a listener to um, explain the associations and interpretations that I was making um, that were grounded in a particular set of cultural formations. So well, it wasn't just a Pavitra sitting in a corner making up stuff about these sounds, but that, but that my listening was—I um, had been trained to listen to this work in particular ways. That I realized, particularly in um, pre- presenting at conferences in the U.S. to ma- mostly um, non-South Asian. Uh, or south asianist audiences um who didn't quite hear what i was hearing uh, and the same thing with teaching right my students um they have a particular conceptions of india and bollywood and so forth but they don't hear the things i hear and i realized Oh, this is something that is a learned, directed activity, and of course, this is an insight in sound studies as well. Um, so that is um, that was part of what I am. I had to get comfortable with in uh, as I, I as I developed my um, skills as a listener and my methodology of listening. Um, also, the emphasis in this book is not just, um, as I mentioned before, on listening to sound work, but on how we listen, what are the ways in which we are um, uh, we are taught to listen, if you will, but also how might we listen, right? How might we listen to this body of work differently? Um, so there's a dual um, impulse in listening, uh, in the way I theorize listening. Um, It's, and I call it the critical and the utopian impulse. And this is, this, you see this in lots of feminist sound studies work, even if they don't use that terminology. Um, And what I'm doing, the critical as in sort of of analyzing the ways in which sound reifies certain notions about gender, sexuality, caste, nation, and so forth um, uh, and critiquing those, right? But also the utopian in that um, how might we push back against these ways in which we have been disciplined to listen? Right? How uh, the ways in which, and um, Jonathan Stern calls it aisle technique, as you probably know. Um, so how do we push back against these ways so that our listening is not over determined? Um, so what I'm trying to do with listening with a feminist ear is tune in to questions of power, privilege, hierarchies, but also push back against them. And so that phrase, listening with a feminist ear, is trying to do is condensing both of those critical and utopian impulses in uh, into a single phrase. Um, I'll stop there for
0: that question. Even if there are recent efforts to at least show the names of sound engineer or Foley artists on screen, sound work still remains as a mystery to academic enquiries. How important it is to bring sound work as an object and method to study cinema? Yeah,
1: yeah, it's so much. And I will say even after writing this book, there is so much I don't know. I mean, even the term sound work, we're using it in this conversation casually as if it's a thing. But, but Um, We don't we still both in public discourse and I think in popular cultural discourse, there isn't enough appreciation of the work that goes into um, the sonic domain um, of a film. And and here I should say I'm using um, the radio studies and sound studies scholar Michelle Hilm's notion of sound work, um, and she's using it to talk about radio um, as a digital and screen medium. Um, to name, but I'm using it um, to name not just what I u- what I listen to um, in Hindi cinema, but also about the various cultural currents that allow the sounds to register um, and to resonate in the ways that they do as markers of gender, sexuality, um, you know, ethnolinguistic identity, and so forth. Um, so, Hilm's term, um, I could have used soundscape, I could have used soundtrack, right? But for me, what sound work does is it shifts the intellectual field I'm working in just enough for me to constantly be aware of and critical of what I'm uh, what I'm writing about. So in, for instance, in soundtrack in the, especially in the Indian context, people mostly use it to refer to music, song non sequences, and to some extent to the so-called background score. I was trying to move away from these divisions between music and what is music and what is a non-musical, what is music, what is sound effect, what is sound, right? So I'm trying to think uh, in these broader ways because I think um, sound, um, uh, the various sonic elements, be it speech, be it vocal timbre, whatever, these are all sort of working together, um, you know, in films. Um, so, so sound, sound work, um, helps is as a term helps me, rem- um, Keep that in mind. This that that the dismantling of borders um, is always uh, something we have to do. Um, in um, chapter three of my book, I I I think sound work even allows me to think beyond Hindi cinema because I'm thinking about um, Tamil cinema and other South Telugu cinema and other South Indian. Oral references that might be in play um, in this in the accents in the speech of the character. So I think sound work for me is is um, useful not just um, as an object and method, but also conceptually um, to do the kind of work I hope to do here.
0: I'm fascinated by the sonic sources that have you have used in the book. The stretches far from the talkies era to the YouTube interviews of playback singers. Your sonic sources contribute to writing an alternative history of Bombay cinema in itself. Can you detail a bit on the kind of cinematic archives you have used for the book? Yeah,
1: Um, thank you for noting that the sources actually lead us to an alternative history. Um, That was, um, again, that was a late realization for me. I felt like I was writing and following and the sounds and the references to sounds um, in text without quite comprehending until quite late in the game that what this was doing was producing this um, alternate history. Um, so I've used films, I've used film songs, mostly Hindi, but occasional reference to Tamil and other um, sources um there are uh youtube was really um uh, just a wealth of resources for me because there's all this material some of it not um posted nostalgically by fans right but still it there was all this material on the 80s and the 90s television show um recordings um uh, music videos of course um that were on there that um uh, I, I also listened to concert recordings of Nusrat Fatale Khan. Um, some of them were sort of private recordings that had been posted by fans. So all of this, um, it's just, YouTube was just a rich archive. Um, of course, the algorithms throw up what it does, right? So there isn't a way in which I was, I could be systematic entirely uh, because I was using uh, so much of the material on YouTube. But um, my attempt was not to uh, note every, you know, complete instance of this or that kind of text, right? Instead, I was trying to get at um, some key, perhaps representative texts, but also to, ca- and that that might help me flesh out a particular historical moment or a particular genre or a particular kind of sonic discourse that was happening. Um, on this point of discourse, um, there's also references to um, Uh, magazine, journal, and newspaper articles. That paratextual material was really um, key for me also because um, part of what I'm arguing in this book is that um, the ways in which we listen is shaped by social and historical context. Um, and so I was trying to get at not just an, I was trying to not just do an analysis of sound work, but also of the ways in which people talk about, conceptualize, articulate what they are, um, understanding about sound. Um, um, and so pra- placing all of these different kinds of sonic sources that some of which were not obviously sonic sources they are often sources that are talking about the sonic right um i think that um that was a really um a, you know not not a uh, at first not a not a, a very th- well thought out choice but along the way i realized the important work uh, that was doing and that i need to do uh, needed to do
0: um, yeah from sonic sources let me check the conversation regarding the sonic question of the text the sonic question in your work goes beyond the use of music as a plot device in films as you have been mentioning you think through, through sound its layer textures and meanings beyond the sound and image relationship. What would you like to share about this sonic question encountered in listening with the feminist ear?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a um, short article essay that I read by Nipa Majumdar where she raises the questions: How do we think beyond the song sequence? And that question stayed with me quite a bit. Um, and I realized that I'm that we could think about that question in many different ways, right? So one way of thinking about it is: How do we think beyond the song? beyond the song, beyond musical elements, right? So what are there? So it's still still remaining within the frame of the song sequence, but how do we think of other supposedly uh, non-musical elements that are still part of the sound of the song. So here we might think accent, we might think timbre, right? Which are not, which are not again rhythm or melody um or musical arrangement. Um, how is all that part of the sound of the song? So that's one way, one um Way of thinking about that question that I've had in mind. Another way is, of course, how do we think beyond the song, song sequence, right? So other moments in films, in Hindi films, where um, that are not flagged for us as. Um, Sonic, but that obviously where well, obviously there's a lot of sound work happening. Um, and this is, of course, partly about the quote, background sound, but it's also about sound effects. And again, also about accent. It's about the dialogues. It's about how- the performance of the dialogues. Um, so those are two ways in which um, I was thinking about that question. I, that, And I think um, in different moments of the book, I get at, um, or I try to answer, um, I use that as an approach, um, beyond the song, beyond the song secrets. Um, but as I said, I'm also trying to think beyond... Think more more conceptually to say to understand how might our understanding of individual films or of cultural history more broadly, how might that shift if we center listening in our methodology and in our epistemological frameworks? So, how would how would Hindi cinema sound like to us if we kept in mind different? um sonic histories and contexts. So non-musical histories, perhaps, non-filmic, maybe non-Hindi um histories and contexts. Um, and how might this um this kind of critical listening inflect our understanding of Hindi cinema, yes, but also about Indian public culture at large. So I'm trying then to infuse this sonic sensibility into Indian cinema studies, South Asian cinema studies, but more than that, um, into s- cultural analysis more broadly. Um, so those are some ways in which I think of the questions, the broad overarching questions that uh, drive my work.
0: Interorality is a core theme of the project. You successfully take up the inter-oral debates beyond the familiar themes of consumption and dissemination of music. Why are inter entanglements critical in the monograph? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah, so cinema, as we know, and cinematic sound work does not exist in a vacuum. Um, it is linked to other media and uh, it relies on other media. And I guess I should be clear, I don't mean this as simply a claim about convergence culture, right? About how, uh, but but I, but something deeper here, I think, about how our understanding of cinematic sound work um, and the ways in which we listen is transformed because we're also, we're not just watching films, we're also consuming radio shows and podcasts and watching television and downloading ring tunes and so forth, so forth. So, how we listen is shaped by all of these other media and media forms and ways of consuming those media forms um, that we are engaging in. Um, so, here I'm riffing on, of course, Carol Breckenridge and Appadur- uh, Arjun Appadurai's term interocularity. Um, and and I'm I'm shifting that to 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 call it inter orality to say that we need to think more broadly about sound cultures and that term is um uh, is used in a uh, there's an edited volume by Laura Brook uh, Jake Smith and Neil Varma called Indian Sound Cultures Indian Sound Citizenship. Um, and there and there you get these various examples of different sound cultures that people are studying um and i think if we are to do justice to the ways in which we listen to cinema as fans um as audience members um then we have to may, may uh, as scholars we have to account for for the ways in which we we behave as listeners as fans um and so so yes interorality as a way to um, move across television music videos and cinema uh, as a way to move across hindi tamil and telugu uh, cultural worlds as a way to cut across linguistic and regional borders and this last point i think is really important because it it um hindi cinema ha- is still so hegemonic in south asian cinema studies um uh, indian cinema studies and and so uh, If we think, if we learn to think across these linguistic and regional borders as we listen, then I think we can um, shift um, some of that, um, those hierarchies that are implicit in our, that are, that are in our discipline itself.
0: For the unfamiliar listeners, Dr. Sundar has previously written about the voice of Usha Udupa, an indie pop singer who is famous for her heavy and husky voice. Udup's voice stands out to the Indian ears that are more attuned to the feminine voices of singing such as that of Lata Mangeshkar, who is also called the Nightingale of India. In the book project, Dr. Sundar adds to the debate of voice in playback singing through the recent demand for the versatility of women's voices. The versatility also ensures the need to sound different along with the need to visualize the singer's bodies. What would have been the reason for such a shift in the audible sound of women's bodies?
1: Yeah, yeah, in one word, post liberalization. Uh, So, one of the things I uh, demonstrate in this book, both in relation to playback singing and in relation to cinematic Kavalis, is that the 1990s were crucial. Um, And I mean, we say this all the time, right? It shifted consumer culture, it shifted the media landscape in profound ways. But what I'm honing in on in this book, homing in on in this book, is that there were fundamental changes to orality and visuality um, in that period in Indian public culture. And that it has been, there's just been long lasting implications for playback singing um, and even not just playback singing as a practice, as an industry practice, but, but voice itself, how we think about voice. Um, so in, in, in the first chapter of the book, which is where I talk about playback singing um, and there I reframe playback in terms of Michelle Chion who is a um, a sound studies uh, scholar and practitioner, um, his notion of the audiovisual contract that audiences engage in when they watch films, um, uh, where we, where we um, understand and uh, the relationship, where, where we sort of fill in the gaps, or we we understand that sound and image are linked. Um, we sort of go with that quote lie. Uh, we, uh, we abide by that contract. If we didn't, then the whole uh, artifice would fall apart. Um, but what I do is I reframe playback itself in terms of that in order to emphasize the relay between the visual and the oral um, that undergirds all cinematic representation, but especially the practice of playback singing. Um, so in foregrounding that sound image relationship, um, we realize that audiences don't just see gender sexuality nation on screen. We're also hearing those. And I'm, and what I do with Shion, because as with so many concepts that, um, that come to us from cinema mainstream cinema studies, um, they're very Eurocentric and they universalize a lot. So partly what I'm doing in this chapter is, um, is, specifying the clauses i call it right so i'm so if this is a legal or a semi legal contract there are always clauses to a contract so what are the clauses and i identified six of them that um um that are Crucial for the Indian and particularly Hindi cinema context uh, for that audiovisual contract to operate. One of those, I argue, is um, the somatic clause um, having to do with voice and body and that relationship between voice and body. Um, and I argue that uh, there were these ideas about voice and body that lasted for a really long time, well into the 90s. The notion that voice is somehow represents true essence um and and the body especially visual representations of the body but also the sound of the body is somehow immoral it's associated with vice um so those ideas that i'm calling together the somatic clause that somatic clause i'm arguing took a long while to dissipate and 90s was when that was happening and yet in the 90s it doesn't you you hear Lata mangeshkar esque kind of high-pitched voices associated with the Hindi film heroine, even though the Hindi film heroine's look is full of jhatkas and matkas and is much more sexual in visual, um, in terms of the visuality and bodily movement than in previous years. So there's an oral lag in terms of these uh, the shifting of this somatic clause. Um, but what's happening in the 90s that, that causes this shift however gradual and uneven it is is the um, post-liberalization changes in the television and music industries. Um, and so those dramatic changes gradually shifted what counts as singing on screen. What counts as the labor of singing, um, particularly for playback singers, but really anybody um, singing in, um, in other kinds of other kinds of music as well, not in Hindi cinema. Um, so I argue that, um, because of the, there's this greater need to not just be more versatile as a singer, but also be visible as a singer so that where before the whole playback singers were not visible, that was the whole point. Uh, now, um, they had to be visible, um, on TV, on stage shows in various, um, interviews or, uh, or, um, uh, appearances that would then circulate on the internet, um, we had, to, we had to see them, see who was singing, and we had to see them in the act of singing. So they were not just these invisible behind the scenes workers anymore. They were um, musicking bodies that were visible. So this versatility uh, in, in vocal performance was part and parcel of this shift in um, the labor of singing and what counted as singing. Um, sometimes we th- think of Usha Uttup with her husky heavy voice as a precursor to some of the more um, sexy, sexy and breathy voices um, uh, that we hear today. Um, and that is true to some extent. But I think also uh, what I argue in the Usha Utopese, which is in that uh, Indian Sound Cultures volume, is that because she came through in the sort of live performance. Um, uh, that that was how she gained fame uh, on Park Street, Park Street, and in Bombay in jazz clubs and so forth. Um, people always associated her singing with her. People saw her singing, and there was a lot of talk of her singing and how she looked when she was singing. Oh, she was always wearing Kanji sing silk She had this big bindis that like grew bigger and bigger by with every month and every decade. That um that notion of seeing the singer. And seeing her in performance um, really dictated, I think, how we understood her um, husky-heavy voice. Um, so so voice and um, uh, sound and image are in play, even in her case, but in a very different way than I think um, playback singers today have to deal with. So that was a long answer to your question.
0: A significant contribution of your work is exploring the possibilities of sounding a voice Without reducing to its linguistic content. The case study of singer Ila Arun, famous for her ethnic voice, is an example. It takes up the sonic question beyond the representational discourse. Can you take talk a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, and representation is it's interesting to think about what we mean by representation here because um sound, um, it, it doesn't matter what Ila Arun was singing, what kind of song or what the specific lyrics were of the song. She was, uh, the very sound of the, her voice was so recognizable as quote, the ethnic voice in the 90s when she first um, came to the fore. Um, so it didn't matter if she was singing Vote for Ghagra or Bichhua or whatever song as soon as people heard that voice, they made certain assumptions about the, her as a singer to some extent, but also the kind of um, a person or persona she was projecting. Uh, that was the sound of the ethnic woman, just as in Latamageshkar's case, it in some ways didn't matter what the lyrics of the song were, we knew this was the voice of the good Indian woman in Hindi cinema. And so that... Um, it so, so we so they are representing certain kind of figures, um, each of these women. And say, same with Usha Utuk, right? Um, um there are certain assumptions that are called up by um the sound of people's voices that are independent of the uh, specific lyrics they were singing. Um it's not that the lyrics don't matter of songs, right? But this, but there is something that is other than that um, in the timbre, in the vocal style as well. Um, that was um, that was part of how we were understanding what they represented, what values they represented, whether this was a good or a bad girl, what kind of voice. Um, and so I think there is so much more to be written about. Um, um and analyzed about this the the ways in which particular sounds of voices And what does that even mean? What does it mean to say a sound of a voice invokes X, Y, and Z, right? Are we talking timbre? Are we using, for instance, uh, Bart's notion of the grain of voice um, to understand uh, what what a sound is? Um, So I think there's so much more to be written. I've written mostly about uh, women singers, uh, but I think there's uh, work to be done as well on male playback singing. I hope to take up that at some point, but I hope other people will also write um, about that. And in other work, I, uh, in this edited volume called Thinking with an Accent that I co-edited with um, Uja Rangan, Akshaya Saxena, Ragini Tarushini it also came out this year. That's a place where we think about the sound of voice in a different way, because there we're t- thinking about accent and, th- and trying to re-theorize um, how the sound of voice that, uh, that one understands as accent invokes place, gender, identity, and so forth. So that's a different way in which I am uh, um, I and other scholars have been getting at the sound of voice beyond the representational meaning, beyond the linguistic.
0: The cinematic representation of khawali, a Sufic genre of music, constitutes the second chapter of the book. You discuss various kinds of khawali, such as the sacred version played in shrines, Sufi pop, Item Number Khawali and Indie Pop Khawali. The construction of a new listening public due to the de-Islamization of Khawali is linked with the Hindutva right-wing politics as well. What would you like to share about this to our listeners? Yeah, thank
1: you. The um, So there my... That I, I want to mention two other scholars whose work I'm in conversation with in making that argument. So the one is Peter Manuel's argument about the Sufi performing arts vogue um, and where he talks about kawalis, um, um, but also Sufi music in general as being part of a sort of liberal response to the growing Hindutva, uh, Hinduization of public culture and politics. Um, and so this assertion, this embrace of Sufi musics as a... Um, as a pushback, as an embrace of um, diversity or multiplicity, um, Islamicate uh, musics. So that's one one thing that is happening, uh, and that has been happening again since nineteen nineties, late nineteen nineties, and two thousands. Um, but. I think what uh, what has helped me understand these the later manifestations of that Sufi performing arts work is the work of Matt Rahim, who's an ethnomusicologist who um I think has just published a book called Ways of Listening. And he talks about this de-Islamicization of um, Sufi, Sufi pop in particular. Um and and th- and when I read that work, it suddenly made sense to me why. Modi was showing up at the World Sufi Forum. What was he doing there? Because his politics seemed so at odds with what I generally understand Sufism to represent. Um, and so I was. So so I think this this embrace of um, of kavalis uh, by the right, in the Hindu right wing, is. Um, I, I find it really pernicious, but I think it's only possible because what has happened over time is that in Sufi pop, um, there is a, a a move to a sort of more, quote unquote, um, sort of universal kind of representation and a de-Islamicization of markers of performance, performance markers, like the clothes people wear, they're still like sort of flowy and, but they're kind of more generic. They're not those much more uh, direct Islamicate markers that you might see in other contexts. Um, So that Sufi then um, seems to be one de-Islamicized but also if it's seen as um somehow related to Islamic or Islamic culture it's seen as oh this is the good Muslim rather than the bad Muslim right and so this um I think this um under, reading Rahim's work really helped me um, understand how there's this how it it is at once a liberal response to the ascendancy of the Hindu right and also being co opted by the Hindu right because of the ways in which the that uh, particularly pop manifestations of that genre um, have uh, sort of. Evolved, and in all of this also is uh, Coke Studio, which of course prioritizes Sufism, but in a different way and toward different ends. Right, because Coke Studio, Coke Studio Pakistan, of course, um, is is trying to articulate Sufism toward um, a notion of Pakistani culture as uh, cohesive and diverse and so forth. Um, but the popularity of Coke Studio Pakistan in India means that. Um, that the right also has to sort of contend with that, um, what that means, and the kinds of um, rewritings of what the kavali is that happen um, because of this other circulation of um, Sufism, um, Suf- Sufi musical culture, particularly on Cook Co- uh, Studio, but other places as well. Um, the rise of singers like Abeda al- Parveen, for instance. Um, so there's this Mm -hmm. There is, um, I think there's greater complexity there um, than I initially realized. But um, by the end, it was the de-Islamicization that helped me understand uh, why the right was meddling in this.
0: The banning of Hindi film songs and Sanskritization of All India Radio is a familiar theme. People turn to Radio Cylon to turn into their favorite Hindi songs. You extraordinarily bring in a new take to this debate through the idea of love and longing. The construction of a national soundscape of India is anchored in the idea of love. How would you read the making of an oral community through the intimacies of love and longing?
1: you know it's really wonderful to hear my own arguments coming like received, uh, um rendered back to me when you say oh it's extraordinary that you frame it in terms of love because we spend so much time writing these things that that's just the argument i'm making so i'm really glad to hear that it is um resonating for you as an intervention um and for me um in the second chapter of the book where i'm focusing on listening and i use kavali uh, as a genre to think about um listening publics that are invoked by the cinematic kavali over seven decades um the the i'm using the notion of love um, a loving listening public um to to describe the kind of work that what i call classic kavalis are doing and by classic i mean um Kavali's in films of the 50s and 60s and i have this long section on barsat ki raat particularly uh, natugarwa ki sh- um, which it, which is just such a paradigmatic song um uh, Na ki Talash hai, um that that uh, that i that i think it, it, it in one way you can say well that's specific to barsat ki raat you know but if you read the um visual rhetoric of that, of the Kavalis, if you if you listen for the kinds of lyrics, but also the the musical features that that signify Kavali at this historical moment in Hindi cinema, you realize that these are not simply love songs, um, wonderful love songs, but they're not simply that. They're not simply articulating the coming together of two individuals in love they are also articulating a community so the so ro- the romance is playing out in public through the qawwali um and the listeners in the Kavali audience are participating in that uh, in that interaction in the constitution of that romance but they're also they're inextricable from the scene they can't just be written off as the background um to that scene so that, so in other words the Kavali doesn't isolate the couple it's actually making um uh making the romance of secularism and the secularism of romance um crucial to um an understanding of the it itself. So it's not just a love song, it's a particular kind of love song that is also then uh, in very much in line with Nehruvian secularism. Um, and so that's the argument i um, i focus a lot as i say in, in barsat kirat but what was surprising to me was that many of the oral visual features that i was identifying um in um uh kirat were also present in some later Kavadis. so for instance i have an analysis of um Parda. I also uh, read uh, the burning train, um, Kavali on the train, uh, uh, Kavali, which is on the train, Paldo Ka Saath And all of the, this notion of love, of Kavalis as conjuring a national community is there all the way through the 80s. Um, now, they don't sound entirely the same The later Kavalis, and yet um, it's, it's remarkable how long that... Um, Uh, romance of of Nehruvian secularism itself lasts, um, even though those ideals were tested really, really severely in the political and the cultural domain. Um, So that long period, 50s all the way through the 80s, is where um, I'm locating the classic Kavali and the the loving, uh, the imbrication of love, listening, and publics. Um, So, sadly i think uh and uh, maybe i'm just being nostalgic here that i don't think is a, is uh, present anymore i think we have very different kinds of listening publics that are now being invoked um by the by the genre the genre has been transformed completely in hindi cinema
0: you bring yet another nuance take on language and literary stu- debates by considering language as a sound accents, idioms, and characters become the material entity to study the language politics of Hindi cinema. Can you share a bit more about this approach through your case study of Ram Kopal Verma's 1998 film, Satya? Yeah,
1: so Satya is... um is a film that um again unusual choice for a film to talk about sound um that is not how people usually think about that film um it's a crime film um uh, but i think it's also i mean while people acknowledge that it's it's about it's rewriting the space of bombay um it's people don't usually talk about it as doing so And what I do in that film, in my analysis of that film, is I tune in to the sound of the of the characters' uh, speech, their accents, Um, and I do that because I'm operating with this framework um, that comes out of linguistic uh, anthropology um, of language materiality, which. conceives of language as fundamentally material. It has physical properties, audible, visual, even haptic qualities. um, And those are inextricable from the uh, social, cultural, political, and economic structures. Um, So I use that to theorize language as sound, but as one among many sounds. Uh, So in recasting language as sound, I'm foregrounding the textures of language, the oral textures of language, the rhythm of words that are spoken aloud. And so doing that shifts attention away from the linguistic content of dialogue to, uh, to come back to that question of representation that we talked about earlier, um, to performance, to oral performance um, of dialogue. So, and and again, this is more than just what we call dialogue buzzy, right? This sort of pomp um, and the bombacity. Um, it's that, but it's also other ways in which language sounds. Um, one key theorist for me in that chapter was Ray Chow, who is a... Um, uh, cultural and literary and linguistic theorist who talks about this notion of the xenophone or foreign sounding language practices. Um, And I argue that if we listen to the many different accents that are in play in this film, um, then and uh, a sense of Bombay emerges as a much more diverse, much more cosmopolitan uh, place. Um, And it is the gangster heart of the city that is this cosmopolitan uh, space. And this is important because um, not just to claim that all South Indians have a crucial place in Bombay, that has been true historically, that has also been true cinematically, Um, but it's, it's also because this film is released right at the time that Bombay is becoming Mumbai. So this is post-Babri Masjid. This is the rise of the Shiv Sena. This re- re- um, return to notions of nativist politics that say that only certain people, certain languages are true, to the land, um, and so forth. And, um, and frankly, I mean, this is quite personal for me because I grew up in Bombay. And the Bombay that um, I saw at that time, the Bombay that was becoming Mumbai was very different than um, the, at least the fantasy of Bombay as a cosmopolitan space that existed earlier. Um, And so uh, my reading of this film is a way to listen differently. I I mentioned before that I'm trying to listen with a feminist ear, um, not just to reveal, unpack the bad stuff in these films, but also to rethink um, uh, the work that sound is doing. And so that utopian impulse, I think is quite evident in this chapter when I am um, trying to uh, uh, re-articulate the films interventions. Um, What languages do we hear in Bombay films, for instance? What accents do we hear? How is the Hindi or the Tapori Hindi, right, that some of the characters are speaking, that in and of itself is a um, complex and and cosmopolitan, if decidedly very urban, rooted on the streets kind of performance. Um, How is it, if we think of Tapori's accents, right, how can we multiply that multiplicity. Um, so that's how um, that's that's how I arrive at this um, somewhat unconventional, I think reading of um, of uh, Satya. I'm also trying to close the distance between sound and speech. Um, and so I have this uh, analysis toward the end of the of the chapter on um, on which is the word that keeps getting repeated in the Golima Rajeve song, um, and that is the sound of bullets, of course, for Hindi film in in Hindi cinema. The way that we talk about Hindi cinema as well, um, but it's it's a sound that is also a word, right? So I use that to think about accent as being as sort of blurring that line between sense and nonsense, and yet also articulating, also reminding us through that move, through that blurring of sense and nonsense, um, uh, asking us to think more expansively about uh, the relationship between place, identity, um, and uh,
0: speech. Um, Yeah, My last question has two sub-questions. Sound studies as a discipline and practice is still at its nascent phase in the Indian context. Even if some studies claim to be sound studies, it may give emphasis to the content rather than the form of sound. What would you like to say to the students of sound in the Indian and larger South Asian context? And why do you think there is still a delay for the real sound studies to happen here.
1: So it sounds like you're saying there's a sound studies lag in the Indian context or the South Asian context generally, and I think perhaps that is true. But I, I think I, I think we're also at the there's an it's nascent, and I, I'm actually quite hopeful. I'm optimistic about the kinds of work that is going to emerge um, uh, that people are already doing that will be published soon. I think your work, for instance, um, but also I think other people. And I'm thinking here of also Vibhuti Dubal. I'm thinking Oshika Jingan, Like so many people, Ravi Kant have been talking about sound and music um, in uh, really interesting and complex ways. And and so I'm I guess more um, hopeful. I wouldn't say that that it hasn't emerged. It's just um, disciplines take a. Take a while to move. Um, and so I think that's that's perhaps what inspired. I, the other thing I would say is coming back to one of the early questions you asked me, and I, I talked about how I had to learn how to um, ground my scholarly analysis in my experience. Um, I don't mean that we also have to do autoethnographies. I just mean that we, when we listen in everyday life, we are taking everything in together. We we experience a place, for instance through its sounds, through its languages, through we have a sense of place through space. I think we have to lean into all of those insights that we have as regular people going around our business in the world outside of our scholarly concepts. We have to bring that embodied knowledge into our scholarly work in order to really um, undo some of the uh, boundaries between sound and non-sound that we have um erected in scholarly work Um, and so i think there is um there is a lot of good work that will come soon and i'm really excited to um to read it and learn from it
0: thank you so much thank you so much for all your wonderful responses dr pavitra Sundar.
1: Of course. Thank you again. This is really wonderful. And again, such an honor um, to you for reading um, my work, asking me me all these great questions, and also to the listeners for tuning in.
0: So thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining me. And I'll be back soon with another exciting book on the new Books in Sound Studies segment.